We're in Romans chapter 3, so if you would turn there, please. We are continuing on through our journey through the book of Romans. And we've come to a passage that I'm sure is favorite reading for everybody. You probably meditate on it once or twice a week in your, in your normal Christian life. And it's not a uh, very rosy picture of mankind. But as we've been working through, we come now to Romans chapter 3, and we begin reading today in verse 9. Let's read together. What then? Are we Jews any better off? No, not at all. For we have already charged that all, both Jews and Greeks, are under sin. As it is written, none is righteous. No, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good. Not even one. Their throat is an open grave. They use their tongues to deceive. The venom of asps is under their lips. Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. And their paths are ruin and misery and the way of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. Now, we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be stopped and the whole world may be held accountable to God. For by works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight, since through the law comes knowledge of sin. Let's pray. Lord, we come to you this morning rejoicing that we can. We rejoice that we get to do so together. Father, we get to pray throughout the week, and that is a wonderful blessing from you. And getting to pray together is an even greater blessing. So thank you that we as a congregation can come before you now. We can open your word that you've given us. We can do so together. Father, I pray that you would bless this time as we get to be gathered together, as we get to be encouraged by one another, we get to encourage one another, we get to minister and be ministered to. Thank you that we have opportunity to hear your word proclaimed. Father, we don't take that lightly. We know that there are those in this world who don't have that opportunity. We heard last week about people in Turkey who believe in Christ and think they must be the only ones. And so they don't talk about you. They don't have opportunity to join together with the church. They don't have brothers and sisters in Christ that they get to be strengthened with. But we do. And so, Father, I pray that we would indeed be strengthened. I pray that you, by your Spirit, would work in us this morning, even as your word is proclaimed. I pray that you would do your work in us. I pray that we would hear what is taught here, that we would be struck by it, that we would go away knowing how to apply what we have read and understood today. 
So, Father, we do ask for your blessing. In Jesus' name, amen. In evangelism, often the hardest part of getting someone saved is getting them lost first. Because so often people think they're pretty much okay. They don't really have any problems. And what exactly do they need salvation for? What do they need to be saved from? Well, the truth is that the good news of the gospel is not good news if we don't first understand the bad news of our fallen condition. And, of course, that's what Paul has spent the, the first major section of his letter here, the epistle to the Romans, talking about. Talking about that bad news, explaining the fallen condition of mankind. And when we started on this section, some months ago now, we talked about how a jeweler or a, a, a salesman uh, who's, who's selling jewelry or who's selling diamonds might take out a, a, a black mat and lay it there on the counter so that when the diamond is placed on top of that black mat, you can truly see the brilliance of the diamond. And of course, a diamond, to look at it by itself, is wonderful and it's brilliant and it's good. But when you put it on that felt pad, suddenly you can see things you couldn't see otherwise. Suddenly you can see the light reflected and refracted in ways that you couldn't otherwise. And the beauty of it is made all the, the more beautiful. Its brilliance really shines. But it takes that black mat. And of course, we've spent the last several months going through a detailed examination of different aspects of that black mat. And of course, that's the first few chapters here of the book of Romans. And in our section today, Paul really wraps up that first part that started in 118 and, and finishes now in today's passage. And he's going to argue today that sin has so ravaged mankind that he is unable to be justified by works of the law. And so as we begin going through our passage today, first of all, I want to notice a charge that he makes, and that charge is that all are under sin. All are under sin. He says in verse 9, what then? Are we Jews any better off? No, not at all. For we have already charged that all, both Jews and Greeks, are under sin. When he asks if the Jews are any better off, he's talking about an advantage, an untapped advantage, because he mentioned earlier in our chapter that indeed the Jews had great advantage because they had God's Word. What an advantage! And yet he says, so, are they better off as a result? Have they gotten ahead as a result? No, not at all. Because that advantage has for the most part been untapped. I was asked to speak uh, this week, well, to pray this week at the uh, swearing-in of uh, our uh, Mayor Kenny Tedford for another term. And so I got up there to pray, and I know how to pray, so I thought this will be no big deal, right? Well, you'll, you'll notice when people go up to a microphone, and this was one of those, you know, microphones here it wasn't like this one like I'm used to normally they'll tap on it and I always you know kind of in my heart I think you know amateur you know they're tapping to see if it's on right I don't need to do that right so I walk up there <laughs> apparently you need to do that because I walked up to start praying and about four people could hear me praying and then I thought the mic's not on that's all right the Lord gave me a nice loud voice 
I can pray nice and loud, right? So I start praying more loudly, thinking everyone will be able to hear me. And so I'm praying nice and loud. But of course, I didn't want to pray so loud that if the mic suddenly came on, it would blow everything. And so I, I just tried to play, pray as loud as I could. And about halfway through, someone came and got the mic and turned it on for me and put it back in the thing so that everyone could hear me pray. I had, I had a PA system. I had a microphone with speakers and electricity and all the assistance. Everyone could have heard me everywhere, but I didn't use that advantage. I just decided to wing it, right? And uh, I had every opportunity. I had the chance. I could have been heard, but I really wasn't because that was an advantage that I left untapped. And that's the case with the Jews. They had the advantage of the the law. They had the advantage of God's Word. They had it right there in front of them. They had the oracles of God, is the way he puts it. And yet, they hadn't believed those oracles. Paul's going to say later on in chapter 9 and verse 32, he's going to say that the Jews failed to take advantage of God's Word. They didn't attain the righteousness that God intended. Why? Because they did not pursue it by faith but as if it were based on works. So they had the, the advantage there, but they didn't properly take advantage of it. And so, as a result, they found themselves no better off. In fact, there was perfectly level playing ground. There was level ground between Jew and Gentile alike. You see what he says there? In verse 9, he says, For we have already charged that all, both Jews and Greeks, are under sin. Despite that advantage, despite that head start, as it were, there's really level ground and all are wrapped up under sin. You see, when it comes to salvation, for Jews and as well as Greeks, they're, they're all wrapped up under sin. When he talks about Greeks, that's a shorthand version, a shorthand way of talking sometimes about Gentiles. And he said, we're all wrapped up under sin. The, the Jew isn't saved one way and then the Gentile saved another way. Or uh, being saved for the descendant of Israel is not an easier task, a shorter trip, a lower bar than it is for the Gentile. We're all wrapped up under sin. Though they had been given that advantage, though they had every opportunity, though they had received the oracles of God, yet in their sinfulness they disregarded them and they, they were actually on a level playing ground with those people who had not received the oracles of God. He says all both Jews and Greeks are under sin. And that phrase, when he says they are under sin, he's talking about not just the presence of sin. He's talking about sin's dominion. Sin's dominion because sin is on the throne. You see, mankind is not just guilty of the occasional sin. Like sometimes we slip up and say a bad word. Or we have, we have little vices or little foibles or, or something small like that. Those things exist. What he's arguing is that we are all under sin. Sin has dominion over the natural man. Sin isn't just one of many options that the natural man has, as if he might choose to sin or he might choose to do any number of other good things. He says all, both Jews and Greeks, are under sin. Being under sin means to be under the sway, under the authority of sin, which makes, makes it entertaining when you're doing evangelism and you ask someone if they have ever sinned. And often they'll get this far-off look 
And they'll, they'll think, well, you know, maybe there was this one time, right? Back in the day, you know, when I was 11 or something, as if, as if they had to struggle to find an instance of sin in their lives. I actually asked that question of a man in Armenia one time. We were on a missions trip there, and the man said, nope, never sinned, never once. And he was like a 40-year-old single man, and uh, he had never sinned. He was so deluded, he was so warped and bent because of sin that he couldn't even recognize his life of sin. Sin has dominion over the natural man. Jesus said in John chapter 8 that everyone who practices sin is a slave to sin. And Paul says here in our book, we were all once slaves of sin. Sin isn't just present in the natural man. Sin is on the throne. So how does that apply to us? When we, we who are Christians, when we think about this and we read God's Word here, well, first of all, Christian, we need to be aware. We have to be aware of the nature of sin. We must, we must be aware, we must be alert to the fact the tendency of sin to dominate. Sin doesn't play well with others. It doesn't just want a part of you. It doesn't just, just want to be a part of the other things that you do. It wants to control every aspect of your life. That's what sin does. It's never content to remain small and safe and insignificant. Puritan writer John Owen put it this way, Sin aims always at the utmost Every time it rises up to tempt or entice, might it have its own course, it would go out to the utmost sin of that kind. Every unclean thought or glance would be adultery if it could. Every covetous desire would be oppression. Every thought of unbelief would be atheism. Sin demands control. Sin demands dominion. And so, Paul's words in Romans 6 are appropriate here. He says, You must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. Let not sin, therefore, reign in your mortal body to make you obey its passions. One of the deadliest and most destructive enemies to the Christian is what Owen calls the digestion of sin without bitterness in the heart. That strikes me. How often do we just consume a little bit of sin? Just, just a little. And it doesn't give us bitterness of heart. That's one of the deadliest enemies, most destructive enemies to the Christian life. And so, Christian, if you entertain sin in your life before you know it, it will own you. It will be on the throne. We cannot afford to be ignorant of the nature of sin. So even though our passage is talking about the natural man and the way natural man is born and lives his life, yet we need to learn something about sin itself. So we need to be aware of the nature of sin. But he continues on. He talks about captivity. He says, sin holds man captive 
Sin hold man, holds man captive. And we have this group of verses here, 10 through 18. It's a collection of verses, quotations from numerous places in the Old Testament where Paul has gone back and he's remembered that the Old Testament talked about this. And so he's stacked together a number of quotations. He hasn't brought in their context. He hasn't developed each one. He's just said, this seems to be the message in so many ways of the Old Testament. And so he quotes these passages to demonstrate that every person is born captive to sin. So first, let's look at sin's pervasiveness. The first couple of verses here, we start in verse 10. As it is written, none is righteous. No, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good. Not even one. And of course, the thrust of those first three verses is pretty simple. You look for repeated words when you're trying to find themes in what you read, and you'll find some repeated words in those three verses. No one being at the top of the list, right? No one is good. None is righteous. None is as he ought to be before God. Though they were created sinless and with a perfect and blessed relationship with the Creator, man has fallen far from that state. Not one person is righteous. And he repeats himself just to make sure it's clear. He says, none is righteous. No, not one. Because our natural response when we say, when he says none is righteous is to say, yeah, but what about the, isn't there? And he, he interrupts right there. And he says, no, not one. And one catastrophic effect of the fall is the, the fall of our understanding. He says, none is righteous. No, not one. No one understands. Meaning our, our very understanding, our ability to think correctly has been warped by the fall. Fallen man can, can still think, but his thinking is clouded and it is warped by his unrighteousness. And his thinking and his heart have become so corrupted that they, man is no longer even able to seek. He doesn't even seek to return to that relationship with God that, that he lost in the fall. He says, no one seeks for God. And I'm aware that that flies in the face of what I would imagine to be the vast majority of theology today. Fallen man does not seek for God. Now, he might seek the blessings that come from God. I know people who have, have sought freedom from alcohol by looking to God. Or they've, they've sought freedom from some other addiction. Or perhaps hopelessness. But what are they seeking? Freedom from addiction. Freedom from hopelessness. Freedom from alcohol. They're not seeking God. They want what God can give them. So he may seek the things of God. He may seek things from God. Paul here says that he does not seek God himself. No one does. And then he says, all have turned aside. There's a way to walk with God. There's a way to follow God. There's a way that leads to God. And what has everyone done? He has turned aside, not walking in the way that they ought to as God's creatures. And he says, together they've become worthless. They no longer function in obedience and submission to God as they should. 
No one does good. Not even one. How can Paul say that? How can Paul say, no one does good, not even one? I mean, we we can think of examples of unbelievers who do good things all the time. People who give money, they they help the poor, they, they take care of the needy, they provide safety and security, they rescue people. If we compare their actions and we compare them horizontally with other people, sure. If we compare their actions with the evil that they might have done instead of doing that good thing, sure, we can say that they do good. But when we compare their actions and their motives with God's standard, His standard of perfect obedience and perfect motive, doing the right thing for the right reason, then we begin to understand the truth of the situation. The clearest example of this in my mind is from Matthew chapter 22, when Jesus was asked, what's the greatest law? What's the greatest commandment? And Jesus gave an answer. He said, the greatest commandment is this, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. Folks, I can confidently assure you that no one except our Lord Jesus has ever done that, has ever loved God with all of their capacity. No one but Jesus has done that. Believer, I challenge you that you haven't even done that. Has there ever been a thing that you've done where your motive was completely and utterly and purely the glory of God in your mind and in your heart with all that you are? And I would challenge you that we're going to read later on Romans chapter 6, Romans chapter 7. That has never once been the case. And if that is the case with you, believer, and it is, how much more so for the unbeliever? So that thing that he did, the money that he gave, the people that he rescued, was it purely for the glory of God alone? No. And so he can say, no one does good, not even one. Paul makes no bones about the pervasiveness of sin in mankind. He says, secondly, uh, he points out sin's social effects. He continues on in 13, and the story doesn't get any better. Look at 13 to 14. He says, their throat is an open grave. They use their tongues to deceive. The venom of asps is under their lips. Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. You don't have to look too far to hear of you know, sins of the mouth and the way people talk. And I was talking with a friend this morning, and I remember Bob Burroughs uh, made the statement several times that the last part of, of man to be sanctified is his right foot because that's, that's the gas pedal, right? And, and my friend and I disagreed that we think it's probably our mouth, really, because of the way we talk, right? But if you have children and the child is growing up and you can hardly wait for the child to say his first word, you just can't wait. You're going to write it down and put it in a book, right? You're going to tell people. Probably nowadays you will have had your phone recording for hours already so that you can catch that first word. And what happens right after they start saying that first word? Very shortly after that, they learn another word. No. And they use that word a lot. 
and not always in the appropriate context. You can see that sin of the mouth developing in a little bitty child, except, except not Brennan. He, he, would, he wouldn't do that. I may, I may have just lied again. That's not good. <laughs> Sins of the mouth. How prevalent is that? The way we talk. Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. But he continues on with other social sins. Look, he continues on in 15. He says, Their feet are swift to shed blood. In their paths are ruin and misery, and the way of peace they have not known. Lack of harmony. Strife. Violence. Warfare. Murder. All of those things. You don't have to look far to see them. They're almost self-evident. These two areas of sins and the sins, by the way, that flow from them make clear the far-reaching social effects of sin. And then finally, we see that sin shows no fear. Verse 18, there is no fear of God before their eyes. This is like a summary. This is like a summary of Paul's... uh, He's describing what really is the root cause of these other things. You see the evidence in the speech. You see the evidence in the violence or the hatred. What's the root cause? Because there is no fear of God before their eyes. The cause of the ills of society is not lack of education. It's not lack of opportunity. It's not anything else sociological. The problem is theological. The cause of the problems in our world ultimately stems from the fact that there is no fear of God before their eyes. And it shows itself everywhere. In thinking, in speech, in conduct, in relationships, in values, and on and on and on. And so what's the application of this whole section for us? Well, first of all, we must not be surprised at the working of sin in people. We shouldn't be surprised by sin in the natural man. He has no fear of God. His speech and his lifestyle are bent towards pleasing himself. But while we must not be surprised about it, we also must not be complacent about it. Sin is killing them. Sin is killing them. And the only way they can be saved from their death is by turning from that sin to the Lord who died to save sinners. And folks, this is, this is the challenging point, is that you and I have that remedy. We have that remedy. And we have even been taught how to take that remedy to other people, the gospel. We've been taught how to evangelize. We've been taught how to talk to the unbeliever about Christ, about salvation. And so, folks, when we see sin in the world, we need to resist the urge to run from it. And instead, we need to pursue those very people with the gospel itself. Now, we have opportunity coming up. There's a, a discussion about trying to figure out if we might be able to, how we might be able to put together uh, something of a booth at the Cantaloupe Festival, Festival so that we can be there when sinners walk by. And we can give them the remedy. We have opportunity to share the gospel. By the way, you have opportunity at work. 
You have opportunity with family members. You have opportunity with your neighbor. We have opportunity anyway. But this is an opportunity for us as a body to go and take that remedy, to take the gospel, to take the good news that there, there is a Savior, there is a solution for that penalty of sin that they're walking around ignorant of even now. So we need not, we must not, we cannot sit on the remedy because sin is killing them. Paul moves on to his conclusion. Therefore, man cannot be justified by works. Since all men are under sin, and since sin holds such an all-encompassing rule over mankind, affecting both his outward actions and his inward affections, the result is that man simply cannot be justified by works of the law. Look at verse 19. Now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be stopped, and the whole world may be held accountable to God. First, he talks about the silence of guilt. The silence of guilt. The law makes it clear to anyone who is paying attention that we are all guilty before God. The law demands obedience from us in ways that we are unwilling and therefore unable to give. And therefore, we are all guilty under it. The effect of the law is to silence our protest. When we protest our own innocence, we protest our own worthiness before God, the law will quiet that. Because it's just not true. So first we have the silence of guilt. And then he moves on. He says, for by works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight. The law cannot justify. Verse 20 is the, the reason why the law silences every mouth in guilt. Because the law makes it plain, makes it crystal clear that working the law will justify no one because no one does the works of the law perfectly. Try as he might, if he might, no one is able to obey God to the degree that he meets God's standard of righteousness and thus pleases God. The law is just too demanding and mankind is under the dominion of sin. And he can't do it. And thus the law cannot justify because the law identifies sin. Look how he continues. He says, for by works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight since through the law comes knowledge of sin. Knowledge of sin. What does the law produce in a person? What does, what does the law result in in a person's life? Righteousness and God being pleased with them? It produces an awareness that we fall short of God's standard. It makes it clear to us that we do not measure up. We cannot measure up. We can't do it. So what does the law produce? In the end, what does the law produce? An awareness of sin. A knowledge of sin. An awareness that, in fact, these verses that came before are true of me. And so, 
the law cannot justify because all the law does is identify sin. Rather than justifying a man, the law shows a man his own sin. And so there's an application. And after the application, there's another passage I want to go to. And the application is this. When we have too high a view of man, we are demonstrating too low a view of God. And so we must understand, we must see the biblical teaching of what man is really like. We must understand man for who he truly is and what he's truly like, or we will miss who God is and what God is truly like. If we think that man is okay, or nearly so, then we reason that surely God is bound to give man the little bit of help that he needs. Surely God must help us out since it's just a little help that we need. If we think that man is okay or close to it, we can't really make sense of the gospel. Why did, why did redemption require the life of the Son of God if really there's only a small debt to pay? Why was it so expensive? If man was only a little fallen, surely he'd, he'd be able to do his part in getting saved and it wouldn't require such investment from God. But Paul won't allow for whitewashing the condition of natural man. He is fallen, sinful, enslaved to sin, and utterly incapable of being justified by his own efforts. And that's where he ends. I'm not going to end there. And Paul doesn't end there. He transitions into the next passage, which is a summary of, a summation of the gospel that makes sense of now in light of the fact that we understand who who man is, what his real condition is, now the good news can make sense. Now the brilliance can be shown and we can see the value of the good news and it will truly indeed be good news. That's for next week. I want to look at another passage where he does something very similar, but just not in Romans 3. Go to Ephesians chapter 2 if you would. As we look at Ephesians chapter 2, now now that we've had a thorough look, not just this week, but the past months, a look at the darkness, the, the fallenness, the lostness of mankind that Paul sums up and says that all both Jews and Greeks are under sin, under the dominion of sin, owned by sin, controlled by sin, warped by sin, and thus unable to be justified by their own efforts. In light of that, that he has spelled out so thoroughly, now we can come to a passage like Ephesians, Ephesians chapter 2, and we can begin to make sense of what he writes here. Because he says the same stuff, but he says it in three verses instead of three chapters. See if this makes sense. We're again in Ephesians chapter 2. See if, if in light of what we have worked through, if this begins to make sense. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked. Following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. 
That's a way of summarizing what he said in 118 through 320 of Romans. He's saying the same thing. He's painting the same extremely dark picture. It is not a good picture, but it is a true one. And we have to understand it. If we don't understand these verses, if we don't understand those first three chapters of Romans, the exposition of the gospel will be humdrum. will not have the power. It will not be as good a news because we don't understand the true bad news of the condition that natural man finds himself in. And we have to continue. We have to continue. R.C. Sproul says this next word is the most beautiful word in the New Testament. And I tend to agree with him, and here's why. So after all of that darkness of one through three, after that, after that death, after the, the end result that we end up being by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind, we were dead. Verse 4, but God. But God. Is God's arm too short to bring salvation out of that dark situation? Is His arm too short to provide salvation for people who are so utterly lost, so utterly bent, so utterly rebellious against God that they can be called by nature children of wrath? Is God's arm too short? No. But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which He loved us, even when we were dead, in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved. And raised us up with Him and seated us with Him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. In light of that dark background, and we must understand the truth and the depth of that dark background. If we lose that because we don't like to talk about it, or perhaps we don't like what it says about us, or perhaps we don't like what it says about our fallen relative or friend, we'll miss it. And he paints that background as dark as it could possibly be. And against that dark background, those two words, but God, but God. And that's where I want us to end today. I want us to end with God's rich mercy. And how much richer and how much more merciful is that mercy now that we understand the true fallen condition of mankind. When we understand how bad things really were, then the good news becomes glorious news. By grace, you have been saved. Because God, in His rich mercy, because of the great love with which He loved us, even when while we were dead, He made us alive. He Himself has overcome that dark condition. That's what Christ accomplished. That's what Christ was battling against, as it were. That's what He was rescuing people from, was that dark, dark pit. But God, by His rich mercy, made us alive together with Christ, raised us with Christ, 
seated us with Christ in the heavenly places. By grace, we have been saved. And so that's where I want to end today. That's is, is, is thinking about the brightness, the glory, the brilliance of that gem. The, the brilliance of that diamond that pops against that dark background. That we would go from here rejoicing. That we would go from here giving God glory for this salvation that we have in Christ. That we would go from here lifting Him up like we've never lifted Him up before. That we would have a gratitude in our hearts like we have never had a gratitude before. That our lives would be changed by that message. That grace of God that saves sinners. That's my prayer for us today. Let's pray together. Father, it's hard to dwell so long on the fallenness of mankind. I would rather, I would rather just have gotten to the good news because I like that news better. That news is more encouraging. That news is... But it wouldn't make the same sense. It wouldn't be as gospelish. It wouldn't be as good a news if we didn't understand that dark background. So I thank You for God's Word. I thank You that You have written down Your very communication, revelation to us. And in that revelation, You make no bones about it that we in our fallen state are truly fallen. And it has effects in our minds and in our will and in our choices and in our relationships and our families and our world. And those effects we ourselves cannot fight against. We cannot overcome them. But God... Father, we thank You for Your grace. We thank You for the work of Christ redeeming sinners from such a condition. We give You praise today. We rejoice. We rejoice in light of the the darkness of the, the bad news. We rejoice all the more in the good news. We give You glory. We give You our lives We owe everything to You, Father. We have been saved by grace. And what a grace it is. May may we be changed by that as we go out. May we not think the word gospel the same ever again because we know the truth. May we rejoice in this salvation that we have in Christ and may we be those who take that message of salvation to other people. And Father, if there are those in this room who do not believe this, who have not submitted to You, who have not turned from their sin to the the Savior, I pray that You would draw them to Yourself, that You would save them by grace even now. Father, we rejoice in this Gospel. We rejoice in Jesus, redeeming sinners like me. Father, we trust You. We trust in Jesus. And so we pray in His name. To Him who loves us and has freed us from our sins by His blood and made us a kingdom 
priests to his God and Father. To him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen and amen.